everything now. Go. Great. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mahmoud. Thanks a lot for having me and giving me the chance to talk about this uh, very particular subject. Uh, so you, you, you were not sure about how long this talk is going to last. I, I'm not quite sure either. So uh, I have three topics I, I, I want to talk about. Uh, let's say I go over the first two. Uh, since this is quite informal, uh, we see where, where we are and uh, if, uh, if we still have time, because I don't want to talk for more than 45 minutes. This way we can have uh, a couple of, uh, of minutes in the end to, uh, to, 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 to have a, some kind of discussion about whatever thing you, you, you find to be uh, most interesting, if, if it's the case. So uh, disclaimer from my part, this is not an academic talk at all. I'm, in, 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 I'm not in any way a, a professional philosopher or, or, or a professional physicist. I just happen to, uh, to teach uh, physics and philosophy. And uh, I, I know a thing or two about uh, what made me do this. And uh, I'm gonna try to, to, to share this with you today, not, not in a personal way, of course, but I, I think these uh, three or four topics that I'm gonna talk about uh, they are qu quite interested. Uh, I was quite interested in them, and they are quite interesting in themselves. And uh, they are well known. Everyone talks about the philosophy of time, the philosophy of cosmology, the Big Bang, etc. So the, 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 the biggest part of my talk is to try to tell you what these things are not. So it's going to be kind of a much more negative negative talk than a, than a positive one. So uh, there you go, uh, physics meet, meet, meets philosophy. You couldn't think of a more catchy uh, title for, for my talk. Uh, and you, you gotta give it to me. I, I had to, to write quantum somewhere, right? Because uh, apparently it's the thing that sells the most uh, in physics today. No, physics is not only about quantum mechanics. Yes, physics was very, very philosophically interesting, way, way, way before the quantum revolution of the 20th century. And uh, hopefully that's what I'm gonna uh, make you see today. So practically in, in, in a sentence, I'm gonna try to explain three things, three lessons that uh, we can, that physics, theoretical physics can teach us about uh, three philosophical debates that are actually uh, quite old. So uh, it's not practically, uh, or it's not philosophy per philosophy of physics that I'm gonna be talking about per se. It's more about how 20th century physics uh, reshaped in a way, uh, philosophical debates that are, uh, that dates back most of them to, to the, to the pre-Socratics. And uh, the, the, the three lessons are gonna revolve around the concepts of time, of substance and of the universe, because the concept of universe itself has evolved a lot uh, through the years from mythology until uh, modern cosmology. So uh, before, uh, before we start, uh, I'm gonna talk just a little bit about uh, this uh, not so friendly relationship between uh, 
science and physics in particular, uh, and philosophy, metaphysics in in particular. And I, I stress that it's traditional metaphysics that I'm interested in. I'm interested in uh, in, the, in the sense that we're going to be talking about uh, debates that. Uh, date back from uh, qu quite uh, qu quite quite some time so how does uh, modern physics uh, illuminate how does it reshape uh, these uh, these philosophical or metaphysical uh, debates but before i can talk about this uh, you all probably know that the relationship uh, in academia in uh, in popular culture quite everywhere the relationship between philosophy and science is very, very shaky. Uh, so it, it's, it wasn't always the case. It, it is very shaky today, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, my slides are, are, nothing, are not, nothing fancy. Huh? They're, 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 most, they're mostly uh, excerpts and, and quotes I, I got from, uh, from physicists and, and philosophers uh, through the years. So uh, the, the, problem is, the problem is twofold. The, the, the origin of the problem uh, of this weird relationship between philosophy of science is uh, is twofold because uh, physicists tend to think that too much philosophy is bad and uh, philosophers think that too much science can also be bad that's why i i represented here the uh, the armchair which is the symbol of doing uh, a priori thinking and uh, basically being very, very, very far from any empirical or experimental study and pretending to understand everything there is to know about the world uh, from our armchair. And the second uh, extreme is the, uh, the scientific worldview in which uh, some scientists, especially, uh, this is very, very, uh, uh, hot uh, these last 10 years, uh, scientists thinking that science has the answer uh, for all of our questions, uh, very, very foundational questions that were debated for 2000 years. Uh, the, the, the scientific worldview give us the impression that uh, no need to debate these questions anymore because science can give us an, everything, uh, a question, uh, an answer to any question. Why is there something rather than nothing? There you go. Uh, what is material constitution? There you go. So you see that the two points of view are quite problematic because uh, if you reduce philosophy to the armchair, uh, that's not good. And if you reduce science to, uh, purely, uh, to a purely empirical uh, enterprise, that, that, that also comes with, uh, with a price. And uh, these two uh, paragraphs that I have here just it's, are just to show you that this uh, complicated relationship between the two fields, it, it's, it's not new. Uh, Hume very famously uh, thought that any book about metaphysics should be thrown to the flames because it contains no kind of empirical evidence whatsoever. Just before I go on, all these uh, quotes are taken quite out of context because Hume is, is, was, was practically talking about met metaphysical uh, uh, metaphysical discourses about creation and uh, theology, etc. But still, for him, even if he reduces metaphysics to theology because of historical reasons, for him, any book about metaphysics should be thrown to the flames. 
200 years later, uh, people from the Vienna Circle, I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, practically there are a bunch of uh, mathematician and physicist nerds who decided to, uh, to uh, create a uh, very radical philosophical group in which they categorically refused any kind of metaphysical proposition and they used to deem any metaphysical pro proposition as being devoid of any sense at all. For them, any metaphysical question about the world is not even wrong in this sense because it's not testable. So you see the, 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 the common thing between these two uh, philosophers or philosophies is that the rejection of metaphysics is on empirical grounds. The slack of uh, empirical confirmation vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, metaphysical uh, debates is the problem with metaphysics. Too, too, too much, we're spending too much of our times in the armchair. And you should keep in mind that, uh, especially for the second group of philosophers, the people from the Vienna Circle, uh, these people knew their science. They, 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 they were very, very, uh, scientifically informed, most of them were professional physicists and mathematicians, and uh, th their main motive was that since metaphysics is supposed to be the study of reality as it is, or things the way they should be, uh, and since we, we now have science that gives us answers to all these questions, we don't need metaphysics anymore. The, the questions of the like uh, should not be uh, addressed through the armchair. We have answers to these questions through science. Because in the 20th century, uh, the revolutions in science, especially in physics, are uh, incomparable in, in the theory of, uh, in the history of thought. And so you have to understand the motive behind these, these assertions is that we were making a lot of advancements in physics, especially during the 30 years at the beginning of the 20th century. And this was mainly the problem with metaphysics that these guys had. So uh, the, the, there's a conflict between philosophy and metaphysics. It, it has between uh, science and metaphysics or science and philosophy in general, it has always been there. And uh, it's, it still is here today, but uh, it's here mainly because of an, an ignorance of what philosophy is and mainly because of ignorance of what science really is. But the root of the problem uh, may be uh, twofold. First of all, it's the lack of experimental evidence for any kind of metaphysical claim. And on the other hand, there's the problem of uh, the success of science. Do we really need uh, metaphysical considerations when we have very, very powerful uh, scientific theories that can really tell us how the world is? Does science really tell us how the world is or is it some kind of tool for us to better understand a world that is in itself incomprehensible? We'll leave this uh, till the end because it's, 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 it's a question of a completely different, uh, different level. So, what I'm going to try uh, to, to do right now is uh, to show you that uh, we don't need the, these problems because uh, it's because of the, the success of science that metaphysics itself uh, has become even more interesting today because 
uh, it's true that scientific theories do not uh, settle philosophical debates, but I think that they completely transform them in a way that makes them even more interesting uh, today, especially when we talk about concepts like time and space and the universe and substance, etc., etc. Do, and this is my opinion, of course, do physics or science settle debates, philosophical debates? No, it does not. But uh, at least uh, they can uh, give these debates a, uh, they give us the chance to see them in a, in a, in a completely, completely new light. So th there's, uh, there's this, there are these two uh, physicists who were the first to, to talk about the philosophy of quantum theory at the, uh, in the, in the 40s of the last century. And they famously said that uh, physics makes negative philosophical discoveries. What does, this, what, what, what does it mean, negative philosophical discoveries? It means that even though physics does not settle long debated philosophical debates, it can at least tell us what reality is not. So physics may not tell us the whole thing, everything there is to know about reality, but it can at least tell us which metaphysical uh, answers are false. So it destroys metaphysical uh, answers. Maybe it doesn't give us something instead of them, but the act of, uh, of, of doing that is in itself very, very important, both to, 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 to science and uh, to, uh, to philosophy. So uh, I'm, I'm gonna get to the, uh, to the core of my, uh, of my discussion. As I told you when I started, three concepts, time, substance and the universe. We're going to start with uh, with time, but the problem with time is that there are at least uh, 10 ways to think philosophically about time. So before talking to you about uh, debate around the concept of time in modern physics, uh, you have to understand that I'm, I'm not going to be talking about the uh, perceptual experience of time. A lot of philosophers talked about this, how we perceive time, I'm not going to be talking about this. I'm not going to be even talking about what gives time its arrow, because there's a problem in physics and in philosophy today that we call the problem of the arrow of time. What makes the future different from the past? What kind of mechanism uh, is there? Uh, and making sure that uh, the future always comes uh, after. There's some kind of irreversibility in the way things are in nature. I'm not going to be talking about that either. What I'm going to be talking about when I talk about time is the status of past and future events uh, in the sense that uh, what kind of reality can we assign to past events and what kind of reality can we assign to future events and what makes the present uh, so fundamentally different from the future and from the past. So uh, this, uh, this, uh, this debate is, is, is quite old. I'm going to talk about this in a sec. But uh, before doing so, uh, if you think about the common conception of time, it's actually uh, very simple. Because we all, here I have three uh, examples, a poet, a painter, and uh, Newton himself, who, uh, who had a... Uh, a quite classical view of, uh, of time. So uh, we always think about uh, time as being something that we have absolutely no control of. 
something that passes. And more importantly, we always tend to think that the past is the past and the future is not yet here. We, we automatically tend to assign a reality only for the present. Uh, we, by we, I mean us, the, the common people, when we think about time, when we think about the future and the past, we always think about the openness of the future. And we, we, all, we also think that whatever happened already happened. So the past is not here anymore. The future is not here yet. And we always cling to this uh, present moment. And also many poets ask time to stop because they're very happy when they're young. Uh, even Newton himself, if you, if you read the, uh, the, the second paragraph, uh, he, uh, he writes that the flowing of time is absolute and it's not liable to any change. So according to Newton himself, there's this absolute immense clock that, that is ticking in the universe. And that is the same for each and every one of us. The way I measure the passage of time, not in my conscious experience, huh, the way I measure it biologically or with the clock, with the watch that, that's on my hand or with the clock right here on my wall is the same for me and for you and for everyone for everyone on earth and for any potential observer somewhere very, very, very far away. So I chose uh, Lamartine, uh, Magritte and, uh, and Newton just to show you that uh, the, the, the first conception of time in physics, the Newtonian conception uh, is quite uh, the same as the common conception. There, there was no new way to think about time in the Newtonian physics. And when I say Newtonian physics, I'm in the uh, 17th century. Okay, so the, the, the way Newton introduces time in his physics uh, is quite the same as the common conception we have about uh, time and, uh, and the change. And things are gonna stay the same until probably the start of the 20th century with uh, the discovery or the invention, I don't know how you think about science, uh, of the theory of relativity by, uh, by Einstein. So uh, did philosophers think about this possibility before Einstein? I'm, I'm sure they did. Even some physicists flirted with the idea, like Poincaré, like uh, Lawrence, but we're gonna give uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, Einstein in the year 1905, he was, he was quite young. He wasn't even uh, 30 years old. Uh, he wasn't even an academic that should uh, that should please you. Uh, he, he was at a, the post office. Uh, exactly at the patent office. He used to uh, my dad to, uh, to read inventions uh, all day and uh, try to uh, uh, understand if they have some kind of scientific merit or not. Uh, so this is the patent office where Einstein used to work in in, in Bern in 1905. And in the year 1905, he actually wrote uh, a couple of papers that are very short, but are nothing short of revolutionary. Uh, and he published them all uh, between uh, the, the month of June and September 1905. Uh, and the year 1905, we actually call it the, the, the miraculous year in physics because everything that Einstein did in these four papers is gonna have a tremendous effect on the development of, of physics in, in the 20th century and until now actually. So he, he was gonna 
build the, the foundations of, of, of the new science of the 20 of the 20th and of the 21st century. So uh, we're going to talk about the, the, the last paper, the most well known, unfortunately, e equals MC square. I'm going to talk about this famous formula. But before we do that, we're interested in another paper in which he introduces the concept of uh, time dilation and length contraction, because these are the two concepts that we're interested in uh, when we talk about the debate about the nature of time. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to explain relativity with just this diagram that I that I drew. Uh, it's 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 a long shot, but uh, I'm gonna try doing doing it in the simplest way possible, but without uh, maybe without losing uh, rigor. So. Uh, just a little bit of trivia before we start. Einstein himself was not happy with the title, uh, with the name he gave to the theory, the theory of relativity. And he later said in his life that he should have called it the theory of invariance, because the theory of relativity is uh, always misunderstood by philosophers and by the common people uh, when they affirm that everything is relative. The theory of relativity does not mean that everything is relative. Quite the contrary. The theory of relativity tells us that there is something that is absolutely not relative and is never going to change, which is the speed of light. So Einstein himself thought that a better name for his theory would be the theory of invariance instead of the theory of relativity. And uh, if, if, if you, you can just write in, uh, on the internet today, everything is relative and you would find all kinds of misconceptions about uh, relativity itself. Relativity does not entail relativism, be it cultural, philosophical, moral, I don't know. Okay, so no, don't use Einstein's theory of relativity to justify any kind of uh, weird uh, philosophical or political uh, stance you might uh, defend. So uh, the postulate of relativity is that the speed of light does not change. And that's a problem. That's a problem because before Einstein uh, in the in, in Newtonian mechanics, we used to talk about uh, the addition of velocities. What does it mean? It means basically that if I'm in a train and this train is moving at five meters per second according to the, with respect to the ground, and I'm running in this train with a speed of two meters per second, my speed compared to the ground would be the speed of the train plus my speed with respect to the train. That's easy. It would be seven meters per second. But Einstein, he, uh, he made this very famous thought experiment. He was the king of thought experiments. So uh, he was the physicist of the armchair, but his, uh, in his mind, there's, there, there was some kind of lab of, uh, of, of, of some other kind. And he thought about, uh, instead of having someone running in a train, maybe if we have someone uh, lighting a light source and since the if we want to apply the old concept of uh, velocity addition uh, we would find that for a person who is outside the train he would measure the speed of light as being the speed of light plus the speed of the train which was impossible because the, his starting point was the fact that the speed of light should be a constant. This is, I'm telling you this because I, I really want to stress that the theory of relativity is all about the uh, fact that the speed of light can never change. You would measure it the same way as I would measure it, whatever I do and however I run and whichever way I go. So 
how does this affect the reality of future and, and past events? Because there's a conceptual jump that we're gonna have to make here. But let's imagine another thing also with trains. Maybe there were a lot of trains in, in, in Bern. We, we actually don't know how, but it's serious. We actually don't know how, how Einstein came up with the thought experiments that he did. So it, it, it sure must have, the culture maybe or the time when he was alive must have had some kind of, uh, of influence on that. But uh, I don't know if my diagram is clear. It's, it's quite, it's, it's not really, I just noticed. But uh, you have uh, two uh, light bulbs here, the weird things. And you have a person A that is standing outside of the train and a person B standing in the train and the train is moving with the speed B towards the light bulb that you see on the right. And Einstein asked us to consider the possibility or to ask ourselves the, the question, are the two events simultaneous? I'm gonna talk about the importance of simultaneity right now, but uh, just try answering the question in your head, are the two events simultaneous? And uh, if we think about it for a minute or so, we're gonna come to the conclusion that the two events are simultaneous according to A, because since A is in the middle between the two light bulbs, the light coming from two light bulbs is gonna arrive at the same time uh, on, the, on the position where A is standing. And he's gonna say that the two events are simultaneous, but uh, the person B, since it's going really fast towards the light bulb on the right, he's gonna perceive the light coming from the light bulb on the right before he perceives the light coming from the light bulb on the left. We are not used to such high velocities and that's why these kinds of uh, phenomena are not familiar to us. But if you imagine that the train is very, very, very fast, you can understand why B would see event on the right happening before event on the left. So who is right? And the answer would be either no one or both are right because A is not making any kind of mistake by saying that the two events are simultaneous and B himself would not be making any kind of mistake by saying that event light bulb on the right happened before light bulb on the left. And Einstein himself thought that the relativity of simultaneity is the essence of relativity. Why? Why is simultaneity so important? Because when you use the word this event is present, this event is future, this event is past. How are you judging that an event is present? What does it mean for an event to be happening right now? It means that it's taking place simultaneously with my perception of it. If I say that this event took place at three o'clock, what does this mean? It means that the event took place simultaneously with me reading three o'clock on my uh, wristwatch. The two events reading three o'clock or the clock reading three o'clock and the event taking place are simultaneous. But if simultaneity itself is relative, is observer dependent, then the concept of present itself and future and past would become themselves also observer dependent. But the problem is that since here on earth, we all have relative speeds that are very, 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 very slow compared to the speed of light. The speed of light is quite, light is quite fast. Huh? So uh, since all velocities that we see here on earth are very, very small compared to the speed of light, we would not notice 
these concepts. And it would make sense for me to say that this event is present, this event is future, and this event is past. But if we're dealing with very, very fast velocities, these assertions would not hold anymore. And if you're not comfortable with velocities, you can uh, replace them by uh, distances. Because if you have something that is not going very slow, but is very, very far away, for reasons that I'm not going to go into right now, you would have the same effect. So you would lose the simultaneity between yourself and the guy who is standing either very, very far from you or who is moving very, very fast with respect to you. So uh, this is your crash course in relativity. I know it was really, really bad, but we don't have time to go into the details. So let's uh, jump to the uh, philosophical morals of what I just uh, said, because they, they're quite important. I think that they're, they're the most interesting. Uh, today, we, we, we tend to think a lot about quantum theory that we always forget about uh, classical relativity. So uh, to put it into context, the debate dates back to the pre-Socratics. You probably know this, uh, this very famous debate about the nature of being between Parmenides and uh, Heraclitus. Uh, quick uh, disclaimer, I, I'm sure we will never really understand what these people meant by writing the things they wrote. So I'm, I'm not saying that uh, it's the same questions that uh, used to drive Parmenides and Heraclitus are the ones that Einstein is interested in. Okay, there, there are more than 2000 centuries between these two people. We do know the pre-Socrates, but I'm sure we will never know them enough to really understand uh, wh what they're saying. But if we want to put the problem into context, there was a problem with, uh, so in a, in a word, Parmenides was the philosopher of being and Heraclitus was the philosopher of becoming. For Parmenides, the concept of becoming and the change was, it, it, it was an illusion because everything is. You can't even say that it already is because there, there's no passage of time. So Parmenides would, would think about the whole universe and the whole, the whole existence as already being there. And our consciousness is only maybe traveling through uh, this, uh, this being that is the universe with all its history already somehow written inside it. So uh, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I think it's very, very interesting that one of the most of the oldest debates about the nature of being in philosophy, I'm sure, maybe other philosophers before the, the pre-Socrates, the, the pre-Socratics talked about this, but I probably don't, 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 don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm not a specialist in any kind of uh, uh, Eastern philosophies, but uh, the beauty about it is that you have a very, very, very old debate about the nature of being that is still relevant in the context of relativity today. Why? Because if we think, if we ask the question, uh, Wittgenstein famously asked himself, uh, where does the present go when it becomes past? And where is the past? And so it looks like, according to relativity, and I'm, on, I'm only going to say it looks like some philosophers went all the way by saying that the debate is settled. I'm not going to do this, but it looks like that this, the theory of relativity, of special relativity, entails that future events and past events are as real as the present moment. I know this sounds quite uh, 
paradoxical at first, but uh, it's 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 hard to swallow, and that's the beauty about it because we're not only talking about philosophy of science here; it, it has moral implications, right? Because if if the future is already there, in a way, it it might affect how we talk about uh, the whole freedom and responsibility debate. So uh, this is quite odd because you would never think that talking about the metaphysics of science and relativity uh, might get you talking about uh, moral philosophy, which is radically different from anything we do in, in metaphysics. I'm not saying, again, that relativity tells us that the future is already there, it's already written in a way, and you're only going through something that already exists. I'm saying that it seems that the most common uh, interpretation of special relativity today uh, accepts the idea that past and future events are as real as present events. Einstein himself uh, battled with this idea. You can read what I, what, what I got here from Carnap's uh, biography, saying that the concept of now was very hard to swallow for Einstein because he thought that the concept of now is meaningless in physics. My now, in the sense that my present is radically different from yours. It's actually not because we are very close to each other and we are not moving very fast one according to the other. But if we were moving very fast one according to the other, or if we were living very, very, very far away, and by very far away, I mean billions of light years away, these effects would be tremendous and that your now would be radically different than my now. What I consider to be past events, the death of Einstein, and future events, the, I don't know, potential earthquake that could hit, are future and past. But for someone living very, very far away and moving just a little bit closer to the earth, these, these events might both be past or might both be future. And if they are both past, we don't have, we don't have any, uh, any way but to say that they have some kind of reality. And it's, it's, uh, it's, do we talk about this today? You might ask me, and the answer is yes. But if, if you're looking for, for an answer to this problem, or even if you want to discuss this problem, unfortunately, it's not very much discussed in, in, in physics circles. It was exiled into the world of philosophy. You see, philosophy of physics as, as, as an academic branch was born quite late because at the beginning of last century, the physicists themselves were doing philosophy of physics and philosophy of science. But after the, the, the 50s, we now have physics who, physicists who only work on physics, maybe making the world a better place. And whenever you want to think about these fundamental questions, you, you're gonna be exiled to the world of uh, philosophy of science. At least that, that, that's what happened to me, but uh, just, just a, a heads up because uh, pe the people who used to think about these questions were the physicists themselves. And uh, the beauty about Einstein is that he really tried to understand what his equations are telling him. He wasn't only ma making equations, claiming that he is discovering how the world works, because he really thought if you, if, if you look closely, closely at his writings, he really understood what was going on uh, with uh, 
contemporary philosophy back in the day. Okay, so I'm not, I told you before, I'm not going to go as far as uh, Putnam. Putnam is a, is a heavyweight uh, analytic philosopher. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he wrote a very important uh, paper in which he actually thinks, he, he tells us that he actually thinks that relativity settles the debate. And he is sure that future things and events are real. And likewise, all past things, even though they don't exist now. So there's some kind of spatialization of time that is very, very radical, because you would all agree that the Eiffel Tower exists, even if we're not there. We're all here. We can't see the Eiffel Tower. It's not in our proximity, but no one would tell me that it doesn't exist. So people who take relativity very seriously would do the same thing with temporal events in the sense that the potential earthquake that is gonna happen in 10 years exists in a way, but we're just not there yet. Okay, so. Uh... Um, yes, <laughs> I, uh, just a second, because this is, I think this, this would be a bit, uh, a bit very, a bit difficult to digest for people who it is. know absolutely it's... shit about this. What the fuck does it mean that the past and the future are as real as the present? Like I know you you you've already spoken about this, but I mean, it, like the, the thing, how can we how can we make it more uh, tangible for us? How can we un like how can we understand it? And the, the potential earthquake is already real. Is it that it's yes? Is it that it's going to happen whether or not we like it, or is it is it? Uh, because what 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 does real mean here? That, that's a that, exactly that that's a very important uh, nuance that we have to make here. Because in the debate about the nature of events in relativity, you have philosophers who think that events are real in the sen in the sense that what you just said right now, they're going to happen whether we like it or not. But some would say that they already have a reality, just like past events have a reality you would say that the fact that Socrates uh, drank the hemlock and died actually happened in Athens 2000 years ago. And these people would tell you that whatever future event is gonna happen is already here in a way. So when you're using language, when you're using the, 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 the act of becoming in your language, this is where you're making a mistake. Your consciousness is making you a prisoner of the present moment, but actually the, the outcome is already here. Maybe like, 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 like when you're watching a movie, the ending of the movie is already here, but you're just not there yet. And maybe your consciousness is stuck in this perceptual flow of time, just like your body is stuck in Beirut right now. And if you want to go to New York or to Paris, it's gonna actually take some, so, so, there's work to do, you can go, but there's still this difference between space and time is that in, sp in space, you can always go backwards and uh, whatever backward uh, me backwards mean, but Roman in time you can't. is asking, so uh, linearity in Newtonian uh, uh, or uh, linearity in Newtonian uh, mechanics or physics is incorrect? There's still some kind of linearity because the idea of the way time is flowing from what we call the past to the future is due to another uh, physical theory. We're gonna have to go into thermodynamics. There's actually a physical law, and I say law because it's, it's, it's a probabilistic law, that uh, 
makes things happen the way they do happen in the sense that uh, things always tend to become uh, more disordered and what you call the future is always quite more chaotic in a physical sense than the past. But uh, you can save linearity. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but you can save linearity uh, in this this conception. If you you want to go to the linearity or, or possible cyclic uh, happenings in time, we're going to be ha- we're going to be either talking about thermodynamics, or we're going to have to jump to general relativity, the other theory uh, invented by Einstein ten, ten years later, which accepts uh, time traveling solutions. But I, I, I just didn't want to go into this um, right now because okay. I don't want I don't want to flirt with, with with science fiction. So in the end, if if you still have a question about that, because I'm not sure that I answered your question, we can get back to this uh, problem. Okay. So. Uh, and uh, one last thing, sorry, but I I have yeah. to because it's it's before we jump to maybe the before you continue, uh, where does change come in here, or is it also related to? Uh, to thermodynamics and whatnot, like, is there, can we talk yes. about change? No, and- no, no, you, you, it, it's, it's change in a perceptual way. You see things changing because, because you are moving in space time. And at an individual but, level, how does that, uh, so we're already- But, but, things, but, but things are, you just have to accept that everything is a uh, la mm-hmm. Parmenides. What does this mean for our perceptual experience of time? I don't know. I don't know. And Einstein thought about that and he actually met with with Bergson and you know much better than myself that Bergson was crazy about the idea of perceptual experience of time. And they they, they did meet and they did talk about this. But uh, again, I I just didn't want to spend the whole whole lecture talking about time. Uh, I started with the most dangerous thing the other, the other two concepts are, are, are softer and are easier to swallow than the concept of time. Interesting. But I, I had to just uh, mind fucking blowing. Yeah, I, I just had to ask the question because it's uh, so that we at least un- try to wrap our heads around it a bit. Einstein himself never, in my opinion, he never got to wrap his head around it. Never. Because it's, it, it he really believed that this is what his physics told him. And Einstein was a, re- was a realist in the sense that he really believed that science uh, gives us a, a complete clear picture of reality. He wanted to believe his physics, but in a way, on a personal level, he had the same problem that you have and that I have. It's that it's very hard for us to accept that future events, past events, maybe not a problem there but it's very hard for us to swallow the uh, so-called reality of future events, whatever that means. But uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's still a, a topic that is very hotly debated today. You can read a lot of things. The debate today, it, it's not called being and becoming anymore. It's mainly called the debate between eternalism, people who believe that everything already is, and presentism, people who think that only the present is real. So eternalists think that everything is, presentists think that only the present uh, is real. It's related to, to, to the philosophy of language today. So it's, the, 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 the debate is, uh, is, uh, is quite uh, big in uh, philosophy circles, but uh, 
it, it's, it, it has a completely different taste today. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. It, it became quite too academic, but in, in, in Einstein's last years, it was really a, a, a moral, if I dare say, problem for him. He, he really uh, thought that physics is making him take a, a, a philosophical, a moral philosophical choice. Yeah. Not so much. Shall we? They tried to put together the hydrogen bomb, but yeah. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this actually right now, right now, huh. because my second talk is about substance. It's another uh, favorite uh, topic in, in philosophy, substance. What is an object? Metaphysics is the art of making everyday objects uh, seem uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, hard to, to understand and to characterize. So uh, in this part, we're going to see that uh, the revolutions of the 20th century, starting with Einstein, then in quantum theory, they have completely dematerialized matter. I know it's, it's, it's paradoxical, but uh, today, I, I know in high school, chemistry and physics, that's, that's what they teach us, right? That matter is made up of atoms, atoms are made up of a nucleus, and the nucleus contains, et cetera, et cetera. And they always give you this idea that particles are like these uh, little material uh, constituents because themselves, they themselves make up matter. But if you really ask yourself, what are particles? Uh, you, the only answer that science can give you is that we don't really know, but it doesn't seem as material as that. That's the best answer I could, uh, I can formulate right now. So what do I mean by this? Uh, the, the question that we're going to try to, to answer is very simple. What makes a physical object? What do we mean when, what do I mean when I say my mug is a physical object, my bed is a physical object, my body is a physical object? And we're going to see that this, the question itself is quite hard to, uh, to answer and that with the revolution of 20th century physics, it became even more hard to, uh, to, to, to answer. And you're going to see the effect, this negative effect Negative is is not is not something bad. I mean it in a positive. I mean it in a positive way, because it's going to destroy our our common conceptions about the the, the materiality of uh, of things. So if we, uh, I don't know. I I tried thinking about what I would think makes a body a body, and uh, I think that we can all agree that it's something concrete in the sense that it's not abstract like uh, mathematical entities, for example. It's concrete. It's there. It's material, it has mass, it occupies a space, resists through time, we can forget about this now, and it exists. Just to be clear, I'm not gonna talk about existence because I would have to go very deep into quantum mechanics and we don't have time to do this today. And I'm not gonna talk about the reality of abstract concepts, like the things invented by mathematicians, do they have some kind of reality or not? I'm only gonna focus on the mass part because we would all agree that every object in your room right now has a certain mass. And you're gonna to try to understand how the concept of mass itself has evolved uh, from a long, long time ago with the pre-Socratics maybe, because they, they, they are the first to, in, to introduce the concept of, uh, of atoms. But of course, the atoms of the pre-Socratics has nothing to do 
with our modern ideas of, of atoms until uh, until today. But the uh, I always give you the, the conclusion in, in the beginning by telling you that most of physicists would agree today that it doesn't have any sense to apply these concepts of materiality on the constituents of matter. The constituents of matter themselves are not material. Where does this property of materiality emerge? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Okay, so uh, three blows. Again, I'm, I'm being, uh, it, it's horrible how, uh, how, how bad my exposition of these physical uh, discoveries is, but we don't have uh, much time to, to, to because more the 20th century physics is so, uh, it, 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 it evolved very, very fast that we, we actually really can't keep up philosophically with everything that is happening. So uh, I chose three steps in the history of physics that, that, that can be considered as being assaults on the common view uh, about matter. The first one being the mass energy equivalence, 1905. That's what you were talking about right now, Einstein's relationship with the bomb. Uh, it has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about, but I think we should uh, we, we should talk about it for for just a minute, because uh, I have a poem here, but it's in French. Sorry, I, I couldn't translate it. But he's actually saying what you were saying is that Einstein didn't really care about us when he was writing his equations because they led to the construction of bombs that are going to kill uh, thousands and thousands of people in a second. So. Uh, Einstein discovered the most, uh, the most famous physics in uh, the, the, the most uh, famous equation in physics in 1905, the uh, energy mass equivalence E equals MC square. What does it tell us? It tells us that uh, mass and energy are two interchangeable properties of matter. You can actually change the mass of something into energy and the energy of something into mass. And actually we know today, this is the first philosophical moral, is that most of the mass of a body is not due to the mass of its constituents. That's very, very cool because in, in philosophy, that's what we call Mariology, the, the, the study of the relationship between the parts and the whole, you would think and the, 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 the normal, the, uh, the conception of matter would say that the whole is the sum of its parts, but the equivalence principle tells us that it's not the case because 90% of your mass and the mass of this table is not due to the sum of the masses of its constituents. So if I take the mass of all the protons and neutrons, etc., that make up this table, I would only get around 10% of the mass of the table. The 90% would be the mass due to the a huge amount of energy that is present in these constituents, keeping them glued together, etc. That's the first philosophical uh, moral that we can that we can get from uh, Einstein's discovery in 1905. So uh, the picture that I have here has nothing to do with what we uh, with what we're talking about. But you can't talk about E equals mc square without thinking about the bomb. Even the, 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 the Times, uh, they famously drew Einstein with the whole mushroom cloud uh, behind him and the equation E equals MC square. Uh, so in our uh, common conception, uh, Einstein is the, 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 the man behind the bomb. 
that's not quite the case. In a minute, uh, the process that made the bomb possible was discovered in the 1930s. So it was thought about 20, more than 25 years after uh, the discovery by Einstein of his famous formula. He never thought about it before. It was discovered much later with the works of the, the, the Curies, uh, Leo Zilar, Enrico Fermi, etc., etc. And when they talked with Einstein, because Einstein was already a rock star back then, and uh, Einstein became famous in the 1920s, like really, really famous. Uh, and uh, since he was famous and since he was already exiled in the United States, when the physicists who were involved uh, with the process that makes up the bomb, uh, they thought that uh, the Germans are on the brink of, uh, of, of producing a, an atomic bomb. And since they were scared because they knew that the regime uh, in Germany was capable of everything, especially the worst, uh, they wanted to uh, take this problem to the highest authorities in the United States. But no one would listen to them because who would listen to a random physicist from Hungary? So they went to Einstein through Niels Bohr, and they asked him to write a letter to Theodore Roosevelt, urging him to do something about the fact that the Germans probably, because they, they still had, most of physicists flew Germany uh, after the rise of, uh, of the Nazis, but some stayed, Heisenberg, for example, he stayed in Germany, and these people thought that since the Germans still have a couple of very intelligent physicists, they would themselves discover nuclear fission and produce a nuclear bomb. But uh, when Einstein said this to wrote a letter to Roosevelt telling him that the Germans might be developing a very, very uh, big bomb using the energy of the atom, things that Roosevelt probably didn't understand, this is how uh, the Manhattan Project was born. And this is why four years later, the Americans were able to develop the atomic bomb. Einstein was wrong. The, the, only, the, the only fault is that he thought that the Germans would be able to construct the bomb because we later discovered that the Germans were not building any kind of atomic bomb. And then it was too late when the, when the Americans already uh, produced the bomb, it was too late. The, the, the Germans ha had already lost. So they looked around and uh, Pearl Harbor had already happened. I'm no historian, but that's, I, that's how I think uh, things happened. And uh, the poor Japanese uh, were, the, uh, were chosen to be where the uh, immense uh, power of, uh, of 20th century physics was going to be shown off. So uh, yeah, and uh, when, when Einstein knew about uh, the bomb being dropped, he was actually uh, very sad that he was very, very indirectly, indirectly uh, the reason uh, the Americans thought about building the nuclear bomb. Okay, I, 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 my monologue of 10 minutes was just to try to, <laughs> to relieve Einstein of the moral burden of, of killing uh, uh, thousands of people. So uh, it's not only because of E equals MC squared. Back to philosophy, what does it mean? First of all, it means that most of the mass of the body is not due to the mass of its constituents. So the whole relationship between the sum and the parts, which is a very old metaphysical debate, has to be thought about again. 
Second step, uh, two years later, Einstein started developing his theory of gravity, general relativity. It's going to take him more than 10 years to come out with the right equations. It was a very, very laborious uh, work. It's intellectually, uh, it's in intellectually uh, immense because it's very rare in the history of science to see so much work being produced only by, by, by one person. And uh, he discovered something that is interesting for us and our concept of mass. He, uh, he discovered and what he later called the happiest thought of his life is that when you have a freely falling body, uh, this freely falling body would not feel its own weight. In physics, this is very important, but in philosophy, it would be important. Why? Because what actually makes you fall is your weight. And paradoxically, when you're falling because of your weight, you would feel weightless. So uh, that's, that, that, that was a very, in physics, it, it, it had very, 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 uh, very big implications. But I think philosophically, it's, 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 it's a cute way of, uh, of looking at, uh, at things. I'm going to get to this uh, uh, later when I finish my, uh, with my third assault. I'm going to talk about 40 years of quantum theory in one minute. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of quantum theory now. This needs a whole talk in itself. So no, no Schrodinger cats, uh, no, uh, uh, no people uh, going through walls and being two places at once. Although we should do this one day because quantum theory may be the most misunderstood, philosophically misunderstood uh, scientific theory. But in a sentence, uh, quantum theory was becoming was it's 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 we started developing it in the year in the in the early twenties. Also due to one of the papers Einstein wrote fifteen years earlier. Uh, Thirty years later, it's it's it, anyway it 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 became one of the most developed scientific theories because it's very powerful. It doesn't make any sense but it makes uh, very important predictions. It, it, it works. Quantum mechanics works. Uh, I'm able to talk to you through my computer because of quantum mechanics. So even though it doesn't make sense philosophically, we don't really understand what it really means on the most fundamental level, but it works. Anyway, why am I talking about it right now? Uh, because there's something very, very well known. You probably heard about it five years ago, the God particle, that's the most horrible uh, uh, name someone could have given to a physical particle. Uh, actually, it, it, they didn't want to call it this way, but you know how uh, the uh, the hype around physics is today, especially in, in, in the popular accounts. And uh, through the Higgs mechanism, I'm, I'm really going to explain it in one minute. You know, the Higgs particle, the God particle, we built this whole uh, collider just to discover it. We discovered it in 2012. 20, uh, uh, people were crazy about it. Conspiracy theories thought that the world is gonna, was going to end. Some, re some really think that the world did actually end and something, something weird is going on in this place. Anyway, it was, it was, it was a very, uh, the, 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 the event was, uh, was a mediatic event. Uh, that, that that's quite rare in, in, in the history of, uh, of science. And uh, why is the Higgs mechanism philosophically important for us? It's because we discovered using quantum theory when we started studying the most elementary particles. It means that when we started studying 
what reality is made of on the most fundamental level, uh, we discovered something very uh, paradoxical is that none of the elementary particles should have mass to begin with. All of our mathematical model entails that all the particles were massless. So physicists in the armchair, huh, they, they were pure theorists, they came up with this mechanism that would give to all the particles its, its mass. In the sense that if you take a massless particle and if it moves through this existing field everywhere, the fact that it interacts with this field is gonna slow it down. And by slowing it down, it's gonna give it the property that we call mass, right? Because since this thing is very, if the thing has a very, very big mass, it would take it more time to go through a medium. So this medium, this field, as we call it in physics, is everywhere in the universe. And these particles interact with it. The more strongly they interact with it, the more mass they have. It's very complicated. It's purely mathematical. The beauty about it is that we actually, physicists actually invented it in the 60s using only maths and their imagination. And it turned out to be true because there's something that tells us in physics that every field has a particle. And we discovered this particle in 2012 in the Large Hadron Collider. But philosophically, why is this interesting? It's because, as I told you before, what Einstein told us is that most of your mass is not due to the mass of the particles that constitute you. But then we knew that even the constituents of these particles, the smallest constituents there are, they're called quarks, they don't even have mass in themselves. They only acquire mass because of an interaction with something that is not themselves. And here we have a philosophical treasure because we now know that mass is not an intrinsic property of matter. You think, I think that ma mass is the most intrinsic property there is. An object has mass. But today we know first thing that most of the mass of a body is not due to the mass of its constituents. And second of all, the mass of the constituents is not due to, some, is not some kind of fundamental uh, property they possess. It, they only have it, they mimic mass because of the interaction with something that is not themselves. And physics is telling us that we only have the behavior of something massive, but we don't have mass in itself anymore. And this has tremendous implications on the concept of materiality in itself, because in a way it's very far-fetched, it's hard to accept, but apparently it's the way it is. Because using this mechanism, we came up with what we call the standard model of particle physics. And it's one of the most uh, successful physical theories that we have. So I'll, there you go. I'll stop you first. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing here, uh, Dream said we needed a war to initiate Manhattan Project eventually to have the greatest source of sustainable energy. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Uh, we needed a war to initiate the Manhattan Project in order to be able to have one of the greatest sources of sustainable energy. I totally, totally understand. No, it shouldn't have been the case. No, 
but it, it should, this, is, this should tell us something about human nature because you had a scientific discovery telling you that there's a tremendous amount of energy you can use that is in the atoms and we chose to use it as a weapon way before we started uh, constructing our first uh, nuclear reactors. I totally, totally understand. Unfortunately, it's the way things happened, but uh, they shouldn't have happened this way. No, but the mechanism for a nuclear reactor was there. Before we, we could have, I think we could have had a Manhattan project just to create some more a greener energy or a more sustainable form of energy, not to construct a bomb. But politically, I'll leave this to, to, to historians and uh, of the 20th century. I, I don't know why things happen this way, but it's, 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 it's sad indeed, yeah. Because it's all power and power struggle as Foucault would say. <laughs> yeah, that's, he, he, he did characterize physics and biology in, in this way, but uh, let's, let's talk about serious uh, things tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Fuck yes. Uh, yeah, well, the funding part is, is something else, but Saidiki, this, this week we would be discussing, I think, for your and The other question that Suhad is asking is, and this is why, for, like, for, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it, and, and the funding that Dream just said, uh, pointed out. Uh, so the soul-body dichotomy does not exist since the body itself it does not have a material existence. It's like, how can we think about this uh, body-soul, like Cartesian, Descartes dualism, if you want. That's a, that, that, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I was planning on getting into this, this famous relationship. If you are, then we keep it till afterwards. No, no, I, I think it's something we have to address. I'm already uh, way uh, <laughs> into this thing. But uh, weirdly enough, uh, this form of dualism uh, survived worse than this. Yeah, you have... Uh, philosophers who uh, physicists who worked on quantum theory who got really into the heart of these things that I'm talking about and somehow it didn't dictate uh, what they should or what they do think about uh, this dualism between body and, and spirit just like we were supposed to see later how the guy who actually discovered uh, the big bang theory himself was a priest and he, he never had any problem or religious uh, religious creation. So uh, you can find physicists in both camps. Some would say that they do not believe in this because they do not believe in this, maybe for more reasons. Some would say that they don't believe in this because physics says so. And some who actually believe in the physics and champion this physics, who still uh, believe in it. So we should actually make make statistics, but it's it's very hard to uh, to, uh, to 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 know which physicist was driven by his uh, physical discovery to have a uh, a religious worldview or an, an atheistic worldview. That's a very very interesting topic. But unfortunately, it was very intellectual in the 20th century, even before that. Uh, but today it's 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 horrible. Today the the, the level of uh, 
of scientism that you, you can find in, in books about atheism is, is, is really, it's, a, it's an insult to anything uh, philosophy or science should be writing a book of a hundred pages uh, telling you that science or physics proves that the universe can exist by itself or that science proves that uh, you have nothing going on there except for electrochemical reactions is an insult not to philosophy but but to science itself that, that that's what i think yes uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not defending any kind of, of, of worldview here yeah but uh, let's not reduce the uh, whole debate about uh, re religious metaphysics and science to two or three books that were written in the past 15 years it, it, these questions are are very very hard to uh, to, to, to address should we take into consideration what the scientific worldview? Of course, but I think we're not going to get to conclusions that fast. It's something interesting to talk about, of course. I'm, I'm not saying that no one is talking about it in the right way. Huh? I'm just saying that usually the hype around uh, scientism and atheism is, was quite strong, especially the last 10 years. Call them by their names, man. Richard Dawkins. No. <laughs> and, uh, and the new atheists. Call them by their the, names. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is, this is why I'm, analytic I'm, philosophy sucks now, because what was initially supposed to be an understanding of, of, of the fundamental kind of uh, aspect of reality and physics became all about shitty stuff. So they're not doing yeah, that anymore yeah, yeah. because because of this separation between academia and the actual people who are working like the practice the physics. I, I agree. I agree. I agree. Of course. Plus, you have to take into consideration the whole politics of funding, etc. Of course. Of course. It's it's you you can't separate anymore science, philosophy, and politics. Politics and the in the sociological sense. Yes, but that that would be. Uh, just like you said, we, we would have to talk maybe more about Popper and, and, and Feyerabend, but uh, I had a, it was a very tough decision deciding uh, what, what to, 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 to talk about. But yes, of course, these all are very, very relevant uh, topics that should be uh, discussed. Yeah. Yeah. And by should be discussed, I mean in, in a non-academic uh, setting, just, just like this one. Yeah. And by people who at least understand the subject, not uh, people who have nothing to do with science that, or my, the philosophy of that, science, and then they plea. go give talks about or or courses about psychiatry. Let's let's keep it. That, that, that's yeah. my that's my plea. In the end, I was gonna I was yeah. gonna end things with with a, with a plea for a more scientifically informed uh, philosophy. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll, uh, there's one more question I, from Nick. I'll I'll keep it till later so that you can. Uh, Okay. Do, 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 do you think I'd rather skip the whole, the last part to conclude and we talk about? Uh... As you wish. Like you can may, maybe five minutes to discuss this. Yes. 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 Five yeah. minutes. Okay. Yeah. And I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I mean, I'm gonna actually, on, the beauty of online is that we we don't have anywhere else to go. Especially. Yeah. 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 Of course. Of, of course not. But uh, and people I, I can wanna... just uh, log out any any time they want. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That is, this can be quite uh, detrimental for my ego, but uh, why not? So uh, we get to the, to the biggest topic of them all, the universe itself, Big Bang, and another word that is quite misunderstood in uh, pseudo-philosophy uh, today, uh, five minutes.
I'm going to skip this whole part. You all know that questions about the origin of the universe started a long, long time ago. We don't have any culture that does not have its own uh, cosmogony, that doesn't have its own discourse about the origin of the universe from the Greek myths except to, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a specialist in, in, in mythology nor, uh, nor ancient uh, religions, but still, culture uh, presupposes some kind of, uh, of theogony. Uh, if, we, if you want to, if you, if you want to know which dates are important or which steps are important in the development of cosmology, that would be uh, the Greeks. I only know about Aristotle's universe, not so much about what the Stoics or the pre-Socratics have uh, had in mind, but the main uh, model of the universe that was in part due to uh, Aristotle, Ptolemy, etc., and the people that came after them. And that's the, the, cos that's the cosmological model that lived the longest. It outlived the one we, we believe in today because it stood the test of time for more than 2,000 years. Uh, what you have to know about this model is that uh, it, it, it introduced a, a fundamental distinction between what happens on Earth, which was at the center of the universe, and what happened in the heavens. So you, you can't uh, apply the same laws that you apply on Earth that you would apply on Earth to the heavens, okay? So uh, the first blow to this model uh, was what we call the Copernican revolution. It, so it's, it's a very, very complicated 200 years in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, you know, the big names, Copernicus, Brahe, uh, Galileo, Kepler, not in any chronological uh, order. Uh, the Copernican revolution, it, it's not about uh, taking out the earth from the center of the universe and putting the sun. That, that, this would be quite ridiculous to, to, to reduce the Copernican revolution to the switch between geocentrism and heliocentrism. It, it, it was much more important than that. It was a revolution on all levels, uh, political, uh, scientific, philosophical. And this is why I chose this particular excerpt from Galileo's uh, uh, dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Galileo, but I would urge you, if you want to read a, an ancient scientist, it should be him. Because the guy, he, the, he wrote in a, in a crystal, crystal clear way, uh, and this is why he's so well known. He refused to write in Latin, which was the lingua franca of, of, acad of academia in Europe. He, he wrote in, in, uh, in Italian, he wrote in dialogue form. Uh, he used to, 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 to hate on everyone. Uh, anyway, you, you can read Galileo, you can read Feyerabend who, who, who studied, or Coiré, they, they studied uh, Galileo in, in, uh, in so much uh, detail. Uh, anyway, the Copernican revolution happened. It took a while. It was one of the most uh, bloody, intellectually bloody uh, revolutions in philosophy and in science because Aristotle was seen maybe as some kind of dogma with, with the whole theological background. Anyway, I, I wanted to talk about this, but we can, we can easily uh, skip this part. What I'm interested in is what happened after the Copernican revolution in the 20th century, very, very fast, three actors, Einstein again, uh, I, I wanted to put Einstein uh, on, the, in, in, on the forefront of my lecture because 
um, I know he's the most famous scientist, but I think that he's so well known that he's not known as he should be. Because when you're too famous, we tend to uh, misunderstand what you really did. Same uh, 10 years, Einstein developed, there he is right here, he developed his general theory of relativity. Two years later, 1917, he discovered that his theory of relativity, general relativity, it's, a, it's, it's an immense theory, much more intricate that, uh, the, than the special theory of relativity. He discovered that you can apply his theory to the whole universe. And this is the philosophical revolution I wanted to talk about. It's because after relativity, and it's not only due to Einstein, of course, it's due to the other people who worked on it. We now know that the universe is an object, a physical object that we can study. Before that, we used to think the universe as being this thing that contains all things. It wasn't a thing in itself, okay? It was maybe some kind of sum of all things. But with modern cosmology, the universe itself became a physical object that we can study theoretically until the 1930s, then experimentally. Today, cosmology is an empirical science. Some people uh, might have uh, difficulties uh, accepting this idea, but today we have empirical uh, cosmological discoveries that make the model of the universe that is accepted in scientific circles today quite strong. We have made predictions about the expansion rate of the galaxies, about the, cosmo the cosmic microwave background, et cetera, et cetera. Just to tell you that today, cosmology is an empirical science. It started uh, due to the, uh, the, the, the all-encompassing uh, power of general relativity, uh, especially by these guys around Einstein, the Sitter, Eddington, Lawrence. The guy in the middle uh, is a very... Uh, dark figure in, in physics, Aaron Fest, the guy killed himself. In, in, anyway, his life is very tragic, so we, we honor him uh, here. The guy in the middle is the most important one, Georges Lemaitre. He's, he's not very well known. He's a Belgian uh, a mathematician, physicist, and astronomer. And the curious fact is that he was a priest uh, and a, a heavyweight intellectual back then. He's the first one to understand the importance of uh, Einstein's equations to cosmology himself and freedom. This is why I call this part the unnoticed revolutions because no one talks about Alexander Friedman and Georges Lemaitre. Uh, you probably, maybe you, you never heard of them, but, uh, and then, so Lemaitre, just between, uh, between uh, just to, a, a historical lesson here, he actually discovered Hubble's law before Hubble. You know Hubble, the guy who, uh, who discovered experimentally that the universe is expanding and the law of the expansion of the universe, we actually call it Hubble's law, but Lemaitre discovered it before him. Theoretically, the guy was no astronomer in the empirical sense. He discovered uh, Hubble's law before Hubble. And the most important part for our talk, he was the first one to have the idea of what we call today the Big Bang. He wrote a book about what he calls scientific cosmogony. The, 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 the expression in itself is, is beautiful, scientific cosmogony. So it's, it's a discourse about the creation of the universe, but it's scientific. He thought that relativity and the modern cosmology uh, were all telling us that the universe a long time ago was very, I'm gonna have to be very careful here. It was much smaller than it is today and much hotter, okay? Please, the Big Bang Theory, does not say that there was nothing 
then there was this big explosion and everything came out of existence from nothing. It does not say that any discourse implying that the Big Bang is a theory of creation is only due to a uh, miscomprehension of the physics and the philosophy involved. Everything, and I'm talking about, uh, I'm not talking about speculative science. Uh, you noticed I, I didn't mention strings, super strings, multiverses. These things will probably turn out to be true. I don't know, but I'm talking about relatively well-established science. The, the Big Bang model, we don't really call it the Big Bang theory, it's the, the hot Big Bang model, although it was introduced by Lemaitre in the 1930s, Einstein, he, he met Lemaitre, huh? he thought his physics was atrocious. Einstein was completely against any kind of theoretic, uh, scientific theory that would give you a, a, a creation out of nothing. He even didn't understand uh, Lemaitre's ideas at first. But I think if you want to understand the Big Bang Theory, it's better to start by what it is not. The Big Bang Theory is not a theory of creation. Everything that the Big Bang Theory tells us is that the universe 14 billion years ago was much smaller than it is today. I didn't say it was too small because we don't have anything to compare it to. And it was much hotter. And since then, it's only expanding in an accelerating way and cooling. And this is very important because today we treat the universe as a physical object. We can empirically study it. It has a history. We know the history of the universe we live in. We try to, um, to discover its shape. That's what we call topological because that's not important. And we try to understand how it might eventually come to not an end to some kind of end to this cycle maybe, I don't know. But that's a very important philosophical lesson is that the thing that used to contain all things is itself now a physical thing that can be studied theoretically using the mathematics of relativity and empirically using observational cosmology, which is much, much more precise than you might think, really. Uh, the second part here are the problems with cosmology or the problem, the philosophical problems that we might face in modern cosmology today. The fine-tuning problem, I'm not going to talk about this. The problem with the initial singularity, no, the Big Bang Theory does not tell us that there was, there, there was a point containing everything that then exploded. We, we, we only write this when we want to sell books, uh, popular books about science. And I think these popular books are actually quite hard to understand. And they do a bad job. I'm not, I'm not saying all books. Some are really, really, really good. But if you read somewhere that uh, the initial singularity, as they call it, is a point, physical point containing everything, then it exploded and it gave birth to everything else. That's not true. It might be true, but that's not what established science tells us today. The singularity, the initial singularity, is due to the fact that if you go back in time, you're going to come to a time that you can't uh, understand, that you, you can't go further than this point, because your theories break down. Relativity breaks down, quantum theory breaks down. You're gonna need a what we call a quantum theory of gravity. Do we have a quantum theory of gravity? Not yet. Since we don't have the theory, let's not talk, let's not speculate about the beginning of the universe. The, the Big Bang is a theory about the evolution of the universe from a time, a very- If, if at all. It, it, it is 
quite empirically established. It has its problems. It has its problems, but it is quite empirically established. We'll talk about it, but it's not a theory of creation. That's why I wrote the trap of the why something rather than nothing debate. Science, be it the Big Bang Theory or quantum mechanics can't explain, does not explain. It's not its job to explain why is there something rather than nothing. This one of the oldest philosophical problems. It's not here to resolve these kinds of metaphysical uh, questions. Do, do they, do, do they, should they be addressed? Of course, but we don't have the right as self-respected uh, scientists today to say that science resolved the question of even Le Maître himself, because he was asked, he never used the word Big Bang. Actually, the word Big Bang, uh, Fred Hoyle used it. He was mocking, he, he was making fun of Le Maître. He used to call him the Big Bang Man. Uh, because he used to think and uh, he used to believe in another theory according to which the universe always was. Einstein also belie believed in this, at, at least at first. And even Lemaitre himself, he always talked about this difference between physical beginning and metaphysical creation. Metaphysical creation, for Lemaitre at least, it was some kind of act of God. I don't know. Was it? I don't know. But does physics or cosmology tell us that it was not? Not that I know of. And again, I'm not defending any kind of view. I'm just going against the current because this is what you would probably read in most popular account of scientific slash atheistic science uh, today. And this is why I finish my thing with the slippery slope towards pseudoscience. Uh, when you read things about the multiverse, I know that they're very exciting multiverse. These things might turn out to be true. The Higgs mechanism turned out to be true. They might be, they're mathematically solid but they are still in the realm of speculation. They are not uh, established science, at least uh, scientific fast, uh, facts, at least yet. Uh, and in order to uh, stop talking after one and a half hour, uh, I'm gonna, we actually, uh, without wanting to do so, we, we talked about this, uh, what I called this inevitable complicity between science and philosophy, uh, this disdain that we have towards philosophy is not beneficial, ne neither for science uh, nor for philosophy. Uh, if you do believe in it, it's probably due to a misunderstanding of the way science operates. That's not only the fault of uh, scientists today, it's mainly also due to the fact uh, that science is not taught in the best way possible. Uh, in school and in academia, you can have a PhD in physics without taking any course in the history of science, the history of physics, the philosophy of science. So do you need the history of physics to actually become a great physicist? Of, cor of course not. Feyerabend used, uh, used to call these new physicists savages because they were so anti-philosophical that they do not resemble at all the intellectual heavyweights that were Einstein, Schrodinger, Bohr, et cetera, et cetera, people who not only knew their science, they knew contemporary philosophy, they were interested in cultural debates about the nature of science and about the implications of science, much more than the view that we have today of the scientists who is a nerd sitting in his room, only watching science fiction movies all day. That's not how science was. It's, it's not only about uh, not that, that there is 
anything wrong with science fiction, huh? I'm just saying that this, this new idea that we have of the scientist that is not interested in the arts, in literature, in the history of his own field is actually, in my opinion, detrimental to, to science itself and philosophy. I invite you to discover Sellers. He's an analytic philosopher, unfortunately, uh, but uh, he wrote a, a, a very nice idea about the difference between the manifest image, which is the image that your senses and culture gives you about the world and the scientific image, which, which is quite radically different. And he invites, he tells us that he thinks at least that philosophy, its job is to try to bridge this, this gap between the manifest image, the cultural image, the perceptual image of the world, and the image that science is giving us today. And uh, finally, uh, we have to accept the fact that at least historically, we cannot, we cannot separate the development of science from the development of everything in our intellectual uh, history, be it the arts, music, literature. And we stop teaching science this way. Today, we're teaching science for future scientists and everything else for people who will never be able to do science because maybe they're not considered to be as smart. You, you know, I, I teach little kids physics. So this is the teacher and me in me talking, let's not forget that there's as much beauty, reality, and precision in science, in literature, in music, in the arts, and in everything. You can't separate science, physics, or any kind of science from the intellectual, uh, the intellectual uh, heritage from which it stands. In the end, even if it's supposed to explain the world as it is, it's still a very, very human enterprise, and we have the tendency to to forget that. Thank you. I, I, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stop. Thank you very much for this. Uh, a lot uh, to digest, and I have uh, so many questions now. But I'm not going to be asking all these questions now. We can move that uh, private later on. I'll pester you with WhatsApp uh, messages. But first, uh, I'll, I'll go over, uh, because you mentioned something about predictions and cosmological, and Nick has something to say about predictions. So maybe they're related, maybe they're not. We'll, I'll leave it to you. But uh, when it comes to predictions, I automatically, it's like the, I feel it's, I don't know. It's like um, the, the word when it's used around by social scientists, for example, it's alarming up to a certain point. And I don't understand yes, shit about this, but uh, do you have a view on the connection between theories making accurate predictions and describing underlying reality accurately or is reality underdetermined and therefore multiple theories could make equally accurate predictions? Yes, Th thank you for the word. Underdetermined. Yes, there is a flagrant under underdetermination of reality uh, by science. Of course, if you look at the history of science, uh, you can see that uh, so many times we have two, three, four, five competing theories that give out the same results and hence the same predictions, and there is no way to. Uh, to, to, to choose in a scientific way 
between them. Thank you so much for this question. And uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna tell you my view in the end, but this is a, a very important uh, topic in, in the philosophy of science today in general, not only in the philosophy of physics, uh, simply to know are our best current scientific theories actual reflections of the way things are? And if you say yes, you have a problem. If you say no, you have a problem. Because if you say yes, you, you, you wouldn't be able to explain what you're talking about, the underdetermination of theory by experiment. And you can't explain the history of science itself. Because we, we know today that our best theories 200 years ago are replaced by better theories today. So that this, would, uh, this would make us tend towards saying that uh, science may not be giving us a true picture of how things are. It's only a tool that helps us make prediction and make a bit more sense about how the world works. But if you go into this, this is the view we call it instrumentalism or anti-realism. But if you go too far in this instrumental instrumentalism or anti-realism, uh, you you would uh, you would have to face what what they call in philosophy of science the no miracles argument because if you believe that science is a purely instrumental enterprise, uh, it would be quite hard to explain some predictions that science made and turned out to be so precise that they're that it would be considered quite a miracle for this to have happened by chance. Because th th there are some times that quantum theory, for example, predicted some kind of quantum number with 12 uh, decimal places in theory using the mathematics. And then when we measure it experimentally, we, we'd actually find out that it's the same. If you want a more uh, tangible example, you can take uh, the example of the planet Neptune, which was discovered mathematically. It was not discovered by observation. We had a problem with the calculations of uh, the orbit of, uh, of another planet. So we postulated the existence of Neptune with its math, with its orbit, etc. And it turns out that it's actually there. So that's the problem is that if you take it too far, you'd have a problem with explaining how science evolves. And if you take it too, too far the other way around, you would have a problem explaining what makes science so powerful or at least much more predictive than what the so-called social sciences. Mahmoud, you ask me if I have a say on this. Do I suppose you ask me if they if we can actually say consider the social sciences as being sciences as such. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say no, because when you say no, people uh, might think that you're, you have some kind of disdain toward the other disciplines. So I would say no, but that's not a problem because uh, philosophy is not a science. The music is not a science. Uh, the arts are not a science, but I'm sorry to say that they give me as much pleasure as, much pleasure as, as science does. So first of all, Whoa. it's not a problem for an enter enterprise to be not scientific. Exactly. Second of all, if you, if you want to take uh, the physics, because that there's a word for this in the sociology of science, it's called physics envy. Physics is so predictive that uh, ma mathematics are, are, are a completely different uh, league in their own. But in, in the natural sciences, physics is so predictive that some sociologists uh, consider that all other branches of knowledge have physics envy. They want to be as predictive 
in order to be labeled as science. I think that if you put the, uh, if you want to consider the, sci the scientificity, the, the, the something scientific using physics as an example, you would be putting the bar too high uh, because it's quite predictive, much more than uh, even other respectable branches of science like biology, et cetera. Not because it's more powerful, because maybe the things that physics deals with are more easily or more empirically accessible. I don't know. But uh, where to put the limits of science, uh, we can talk a lot, a lot about this. But uh, uh, the problem with, uh, with realism or anti-realism is, is, is going to stay here. I think it's not going to be get resolved anytime soon. But it's interesting to talk about it. And if you want to be an anti-realist, meaning that you don't believe that science uh, shows you the world as it really is, we would still have to acknowledge that science works. And you can take a, that's what I do. I, I have a very pragmatic uh, vision about science and physics in particular is that it, it works. It gives you results. Most of them are supposed, they're supposed to make our lives better. And this gives it a certain criteria of uh, truth. Is it the ultimate truth? Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but uh... Uh, yeah, you kind of did. But I mean, yeah, but that, that would be I'll, I'll keep my questions uh, till uh, later. So uh, Zahi is asking, uh, what gives a material existence, uh, present existence its interaction, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and another question, where does the transformation fall in all of this? Uh, someone might already have, uh, oh yeah, I don't know, so. Exactly, the, the, the transformation is, is the same question of, what you, because change. you asked me about change. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the transformation would be taking place only in your perception of what is going on out there, because what is out there already is. So it's your motion somehow through time that gives you the illusion of becoming and the change but becoming and the change would not be fundamental in this way did you just would validate, only be... validate Kant I, I didn't want to go into this but uh, uh, <laughs> there is, there are neo neo Kantian uh, philosophers after Einstein, because most of them after Newton were, because Kant himself based most of his ideas on, uh, on Newton. But uh, Cassirer, for example, he, uh, he was an, an, a neo-Kantian. And he thought that uh, Einstein and Mack before him, in a way, vindicate uh, Max's uh, ideas. I, I tend to, to see things differently. Uh, we can vindicate uh, Kant somewhere else. Uh, especially maybe in, in quantum theory, this idea that the, the thing in itself uh, is inaccessible, uh, quantum something that quantum theory tells you that there's no, there's not even a thing in itself uh, saying that there's only perceptions. We can talk about this some other time, uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah. But it I meant when it comes to our, uh, our perception of time, time and space. As in it's because you're saying, so there's the space time outside that physics can understand, but then our perception is basically conditioned by our perceptive apparatus 
or yes, yes, that's, the, that, that's exactly, exactly. Akid, that, that's the whole part I omitted by saying that I didn't want to go into the details of perceptual experience of time. One, because I'm, 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 I'm no expert in the field. Uh, two, because it's fundamentally different because physics doesn't say anything about it, at yep. least for now. You, you're going to have to have some kind of developed theory of, of consciousness. I, I don't know. I don't know. That, that's the best answer I, I, I can give you. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh, if we go back, uh, Suhad is asking, if we go back to the first part, all these events are simultaneous. Did the universe evolve? It depends on what a great... Oh, no, that's something else. And thus, we cannot reduce reality to science or attach it exclusively to science. Well, maybe we can't, but, but why not? I, I don't see the point between the two, uh, the two statements. I agree with the second one. Yes, there is, I think, a fundamental part of reality that maybe is, 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 is inaccessible to science and it's not a problem. That's the whole part that I was talking about with literature and the arts and, and, and culture this uh, catharsis that we might uh, uh, that, that we might find in, in different uh, in different enterprises other than than science but the, the part about uh, the, the first the big bang and simultaneity i'm not sure i, I got that uh, meaning that everything has like if 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 the universe uh, so if, if everything is simultaneous maybe at the at, at a universe level everything is already is so how can we talk about a, a, a universe that is maybe expanding or a universe that uh, all of a sudden experienced some sort of Big Bang? If it already is, the, the, I don't the, know, the I'm, experience, I'm to understand. Yeah, no, 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 I, 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 I do understand. The, the, the experience part, we already talked about it because it, that's a completely different thing. But, but, if you, but if you're saying that relativity tells me that everything is, then cosmology tells me that the universe is expanding, we do have a we do have a paradox here, and that's the problem: is that uh, different theories are interested in different things. So the, the philosophical, the, the metaphysics of relativity are exactly uh, the opposite of the metaphysics of quantum theory and of cosmology. Because in cosmology, we do suppose there is some kind of what we call cosmic time. Uh, relative to which we measure expansion. So yeah, I, I understand your, your problem because if relativity tells me this about reality, cosmology tells me something else and quantum theory tells me something else too because the concept of time and quantum theory, at, at first it, it was quite Newtonian. So yeah, it, it, whenever you put yourself in one theory, you get different uh, metaphysical or ontological baggage. And this is why physicists today are working on what we call a quantum theory of gravity, because they think that they want to unify all uh, physical uh, theories yeah. into one. Some people used to call it the theory of everything. That's, that's worse than the God particle, because uh, it, 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 we're not looking for a theory of, uh, it wouldn't be a theory of human consciousness. It wouldn't be a theory of, of music. It, it, no, no, it's not a theory of, of everything, not at all. This is also to, to, to sell books. It, it's, it's a theory of, it's a unification of all physical theories that we have today. And uh, I think it would, it, it's been 60 years that physicists are working on this and we don't have a lot of advancements. And I think Faye Rabin would agree that this is, in, this is due to the fact that when physics was 
developing in the 50s, it was too technological because we had discovered the laser and everything it can do with computers, etc. We actually maybe needed physicists who did not care about history and philosophy because you needed uh, the, 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 the school of shut up and calculate, the school of Merman and, uh, and uh, Feynman. Feynman, who was very, very uh, uh, disdainful of philosophy, even if his writings are quite philosophical in themselves, but you needed these kinds of physicists uh, that think in physics, you should shut up and calculate, just make something useful out of everything you have. So maybe this, uh, this philosophy worked in the 50s, but I think today, if you're searching for some kind of uh, theory of all the scientific theories, since you, you, you can't but take the metaphysical baggage into consideration, we're gonna have to have more philosophically inclined, uh, inclined physicists. That's, that's what I think. Interesting. And we can maybe talk about, uh, not talk about, in general, we, we, about several layers or levels of reality. Yeah, but of course. Maybe related course. to uh, Madonna's question on the concept of the instant or the now, what would it mean for an observer to conceive of every instant in the present as the end? Do you think that would free the conception of time from an orderly continuum and grant it a more generic potentiality instead? I'm curious to know what you think. If you want to read it, it's, uh, should I repeat it? Yeah, could you? Because me, I, I know there's a problem with the now, but... Uh... Let, me, uh, let me find... Uh, uh, so, on the concept of the instant or the now, what would it mean for an observer to conceive of every instant in the present as the end? It's like we go back all the way to what does it mean to it's I don't think it's a conception or uh, perceiving the end. How or how do you think the end? If I'm if I'm. Uh, the, 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 there are many ends in, in, in physics because in cosmology, we're interested in guessing how the end of the universe is going to look like. And in, in relativity, the thing I was talking about at the beginning about the eternalism thing, there's no, there's no beginning, there's no end. There, 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 there just is everything that possibly could happen and everything that maybe uh, already happened. But uh, in, in cosmology, I only talked about uh, scientific cosmogony by saying that Lemaitre was interested in how... Uh, how science can eliminate the, the idea of creation. But today in cosmology, we have uh, what, what we can call a scientific eschatology because there are actually cosmologists who think that they can empirically determine the ultimate fate of the universe. Is it gonna become some kind of uh, cold uh, symmetry of energy? Is it gonna be reclosed on itself? So uh, the question of end is also present in, in the philosophical uh, discourse about physics. I'm going to reread the question, maybe. Yes, on the uh, I, I, the, this one on the concept of the instant and then uh, uh, Romans. Can you see it? Yes, yes, yes. I tend not to take eternalism. Uh, that's one of the most, uh, that's one of the things I'm interested the most in. 
I scientifically I tend to think that eternalism is true because relativity seems to uh, to entail this but I don't want to I'd rather live not believing in it because if you take it very seriously it would uh, reduce the uh, any kind any talk about potentiality big big time yes because if you mean by any moment as being the end, because you would have less and less control about everything that would happen. And this is why I started with that, because it's very rare to find something very metaphysical in science to have such moral implications for us. Because if you believe in eternalism, you actually have a thing or two to say about free will and, uh, and freedom. So uh, I'd rather not go there and uh, just think about these things uh, for fun and not take them too, uh, uh, too, too seriously in my day-to-day -day life, yeah. And th that's uh, a lot of, uh, of physicists did that. Th that's what uh, Carnap meant when he said that Einstein had a problem with the concept of now because uh, his science was something and his manifest image was something else. And he always chose the latter. He was very humanistic, etc. Uh, so I think uh, yes 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 uh, the, the question that I'm reading there yeah we can say this if we want to believe in eternalism uh, we would have to rid ourselves of the concept of simultaneous because it presupposes some kind of, of passing of time but yes yes all of them are simultaneous in the sense that if you were able to have a God's eye view of everything there is you would find that everything is. I'm not even saying it already is because I'm ridding myself of any temporary, uh, temporal use of language. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it isn't this like it. What surprises me the most is that maybe it's a problem of language. Maybe it's a problem of belief. Maybe it's yes. a problem of. Yes not wanting to or or waiting until you have perhaps sufficient evidence which we might not and yes, this that, that's question something might we should talk seem about yeah. a bit naive the question but i mean how is this any different from religious conceptions of god not in the uh, personified uh, god that you know with the, the all-knowing it or like not not the yeah, mon yeah. monotheistic god it's just when they talk about this absolute or that the, this thing that already knows the future and the past, it's, it's kind of similar. It is. It is. It is. And the, the, the first part of your question is even more important because there is a problem with language. Of course there is, especially in metaphysics, because uh, th th that's, what, uh, that's what Wittgenstein was all about. He, because he, and I, I really agree with him on this point that he thought that a lot of metaphysical problems are just our way of abusing language. And by abusing language and saying that uh, in the beginning there was nothing, we are automatically uh, giving some kind of existence to the idea of nothing and going through all these metaphysical corridors and, uh, and, and, and debates that are actually meaningless. And this is why a lot of logicians, I know you don't agree with them, but the way they started, the, 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 the beginning of their program was actually very moral. They, they wanted to clean language out of all these metaphysical miscon misconceptions. 
And to, uh, to, to answer the second question, uh, yeah, it's, it's not very far. Laplace, who, who was a staunch materialist, he conceived of what he called a Laplace, what we call today Laplace's demon, this all-knowing entity that in virtue of it knowing all the con initial conditions of the universe and in virtue of it knowing Newton's laws, because we had Newton's laws back then, he would be able to know every state, every possible state of the universe there is. Descartes' demon. We always have these weird demons, Maxwell demons. I don't know they, 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 why there are so many demons in the history of thought, <laughs> but they are, yeah, they are, uh, they are hidden uh, conceptions of uh, what you might call any kind of God that you might see in a theological uh, discourse. Yeah. yeah like w w what's their problem then with this modern like the the initial this is this is the thing with any every new kind of field or people who genuinely are trying to, to clean it uh, up from all sorts of gibberish and and uh, misconceptions it eventually turns into just a more specialized field that becomes all too abstract so in, in this case yes. why this insistence on and it's not an it's not a monotheism or it's not a god apology here. It's it's not an apologetics of God. But why why the hate? If if materialism is it turns out not to be what we think about as material. It is exactly. And yeah. if it's like and then the past and the future, whatever I that totally means, agree. are already there. And then wh why this hate towards? I don't know. It's like thinking about the fact that maybe the universe was designed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it only that? Wait, 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 wait. Th th that's what I had in the thing that the fine tuning thing, because there are even some cosmologists that think that the universe is finely tuned because there are a lot of physical constants that have weird uh, values that would com alter completely the way things are if they were, if they were not what they are. But uh, th this is the problem with what I, I called in the beginning or you called new atheism, because and this is why I don't talk about this. I, re I really don't talk, not, not in, my, in any lecture I might give, but when, when you want to think about the relationship or about the similarities or the differences between these two things, uh, automatically you would get into what you just called, what, wh why all the hate. And uh, atheism, intellectual atheism, is not what it used to be. It's not what it used to be. If you read the Hume, if you read uh, Einstein's uh, letters, about all the questions revolving around God. But the problem is that you have hate on both sides. Yeah. The, the scientific worldview wants to prove that religion is dumb because you know science. And that's very, very wrong. And it's, it's intellectually empty. But on the other side, you would have all these uh, extreme creationist discourses telling you that, yeah, the Big Bang proves that God exists. Uh, you see, so... Yeah. You have to find uh, common ground, but if you, if you look closely, there are heavyweights, philosophers or scientists, etc., cetera, on, on both sides. They, they're very rare today because they are clouded by uh, the, the hype and the new atheism and, you know, things that, that sell. You want, you, you'd read a book say, saying that Darwin's theory proves that God doesn't exist. Quantum theory proves that God doesn't exist or that it exists, you know, because it can go both ways. But that, that's not the kind of discourses that we want today. We, we have to think about how to maintain a religious or non-religious worldview with everything that is going on in science. But that's not the way to do it. Because when you do it, either you're 
making the other thing ridiculous and attacking it on both sides. And either way, you're, you're going to be wrong. But I don't know. And that, that's what's missing today. That's what's missing. We, we, we want uh, discourses like Galileo's discourses about, because fundamentally they were, they were about the, the, the church with, with all its power against the new science. We need discourses like Hume's uh, natural discourse, discourse on natural uh, religion, but they, they don't make them like that anymore. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, it really, really is, yeah. And again, it's not about the, the actual, so the, the of course, of course, typical yeah. monotheistic, it's just uh, the concept itself and the, the concepts the they're concept. dealing with, yeah, they yeah. have, they might have changed in, in content, perhaps, but then formally, we're still, as, as Suhad is saying, uh, I understand the, fir the first reading of the ancient philosophy better, it's interesting. And it's interesting that in Arabic language, we do recognize different layers of the eternal slash endless. So it's... Uh, yes. Conceptually, we, we, the, the concepts are there. It's just our understanding They're of the in, world. Incommensurable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because just like, this, just like she said that, because that's very interesting how different languages have different metaphysics. And it's, it's a very well known, a lot of people work on this. And physics, mathematics is another language that has its own metaphysics. So let's not put two, the two together and say, okay, this one is better, this, that one is better, because we have to put them all on the same level before trying to have a clean discourse about the relationship between any creationist metaphysics and scientific, scientifically informed metaphysics. That's a, a very, very tough one. Yeah. 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 And uh, in this case, what would the first principle be now? Like if we are going to be... Uh adopting a pre-socratic a, a pre-socratic pre approach the, 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 what's what's the rk now the rk uh energy th that i don't know uh in the late 20th century they would say yes what i would say and what i think most physicists theorists would agree on is field Field. field is the is the new rk yes because all physical theories mathematically are field theories and we have tendency to think that the most fundamental entity there is, is at least describable in field terms. So yeah. Plato field. was right when but he called it receptacle? I, I don't, I don't uh, again, I, I, I think we can't uh, make physics vindicate some old idea because- I'm No, sure no, definitely. Plato, but yeah. I know, I know exactly, just, just like atomism, but yes, in, in quantum theory, for example, you have this idea that what you call an electron, a particle, is only an, an excitation that is very localized of something that is all existing. Just like the Higgs boson, the Higgs field, you can say it's Plato's receptacle. You can do that, of course. But since I'm, I'm very careful in my readings of the ancients that I, I don't like talking about atomism uh, day and, uh, and a long, long time ago. That's, that's hard to... Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, we'll end up with, yeah. a, with a Marxist reading of Democritus and Epicurus. Kostan. Uh, it, it, uh, it had uh, it. As a. Uh, as a. 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 As a.
something which is, I think it has a start, but then it's eternal. Uh, this is Jamal is saying, this is maybe the only public physics lecture where the speaker isn't trying to convert me to some cult. <laughs> thank you. Th thank you so much. But by, by saying that you, I, I, I think I, I, I'm going to at least think to myself that I, uh, I was able to do what I wanted to do in the first place. And, and again, I, I, I'm no uh, uh, reference, neither in, in physics. Uh, some would say I'm a failed physicist exiled to philosophy of science, which I also do very, very badly. But, <laughs> but uh, the physics is, is, is not supposed to be this uh, converting enterprise, neither towards atheism, uh, nor towards uh, theism nor creationism just do it it's really fun uh, maybe someone uh, here is actually a physicist or a physicist uh, or Jamal, physics. Jamal okay. is he graduated recently he has a Th that's PhD. great yeah so uh, if if i uh, if i can uh, yani let myself uh, just give you a piece of advice that i think you you already know is that uh, it's it, it's it's cool it, it's fun if 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 you're uh, if you like doing the mathematics just just, it's fun. I don't want to vindicate atheism or theism or creationism. I think physics is is interesting. It gives results. It's fun to do. I I, I think about it as an activity, just like uh, just like music, just like uh, everything else I do. Let's not take things too seriously. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for, for you your messages. You ended <laughs> up with, with uh, let's not take things too seriously, sardonically speaking. We yes, have that's adopt, your uh, sardonic exactly. yes, uh, attitude. Exactly. Thank you very much. I don't know if anyone Thanks has anything to say, but uh, I really enjoyed the, the talk. Thank you. Thanks again. We, we'll do it again uh, soon. Uh, I, I yeah. promise you in front of everyone that I'm going to become more active on uh, on Twitter and eventually uh, get uh, uh, half as good as you are with your online courses. Hey, I, I will do that someday. I'm trying to encourage. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will, Jamal. Thank you. I'll, uh, I'm there, but I'm not active. I, let's say I'm going to start uh, tomorrow, since I now I have all you beautiful people as my as my friends. So uh, this way we can get Mahmoud to 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 do this kind of gathering sometime soon, or maybe have a course on uh, relativity or quantum theory, the way it's intended to be to be thought. Yeah, and more discussions like that, because they are, to be honest, much needed to clear things up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, with everything that is going on, of course, of course, yeah. yes. So I'll...